Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 206 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I hang out with distiller Lauren Patz. She's the head distiller at Redwood Empire, a distillery that's making waves all over the country with its California whiskeys and commitment to environmental stewardship. But before we start geeking out over fermentation, cooperage, and blending, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured whiskey cocktail is the 4th Regiment. To make it, you'll need 1 ounce of rye whiskey, 1 ounce sweet vermouth, and 1 dash each of aromatic orange and celery bitters. Combine these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for about 15 seconds until the drink is well chilled and diluted, and then strain into a coupe glass and garnish with, well, we'll get to that in a second. The fourth regiment is commonly traced back to the second volume of Charles H. Baker's 1946 publication, The Gentleman's Companion, with volume one being an exotic cookery book and volume two being an exotic drinking book. Baker supposedly picked up the recipe for the 4th Regiment from a British naval officer in Bombay. And I suppose with all the Allied presence in the Pacific at the time, it's not entirely surprising that the cocktail contains so many American and European ingredients. This, unfortunately, is one of those cocktail recipes that suffers from the strange way that barroom chatter and storytelling seems to find a way to jump straight into the internet in its exaggerated, unsighted, and defiantly unverifiable format. Because although most online recipes credit Baker's book as popularizing the drink, if it can be even considered popular at all, they also generally lob something out there to the effect of, oh yeah, and by the way, there's an older version of this cocktail that calls for Peychaud's bitters instead of Angostura, or the recipe was first published in 1889 or 1914. As I hinted, garnish talk is similarly shifty. Many recipes suggest an express lemon twist, while some say that the British naval officer called for a lime twist, which may have simply been a garnish of convenience while in Bombay. And then Thrillist comes in like the Kool-Aid man and says, hey, we really like an olive or a cocktail onion in here to complement the savory notes of the celery bitters. And as if things weren't bad enough, we've got to interpret what one dash of bitters means, spread across three different bottles, probably containing different aperture sizes and viscosities, and we also need to decide if we agree with Souther Teague's assertion that one dash of bitters amounts to two shakes of the bottle. In the end, the 4th Regiment is a 50-50 Manhattan, designed in the style of the original cocktail meant only to serve about three ounces worth of drink. It was popularized by a book that is known less for its accuracy or culinary flair and more for its fanciful depiction of a bon vivant's luxurious travels abroad. But hopefully, you can take the spirit of the drink and use it to design your perfect rendition to try out 
at home. So, now that you've got yourself an American whiskey cocktail by way of Bombay, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this barrel-aged deep dive into bourbon and American whiskey with distiller Lauren Patz, some of the topics we discuss include how Lauren's roots in Napa Valley winemaking led her to fall in love with the craft of distillation and barrel maturation, why California in general, and Northern California in particular, is a burgeoning American whiskey ecosystem bursting with local grain, available cooperage, and more native wine finishing opportunities than anywhere else in the country. Then, we walk through Lauren's method for making Redwood Empire whiskey step-by-step, examining her approach to important procedural touchpoints like malting, fermentation, sourcing, maturation, and blending. We also sample a delicious new product offering called Grizzly Beast, which is a bonded bourbon whiskey made using some of the first barrels of whiskey laid down by Redwood Empire in the earliest days of their operation. We also take some time to work through Lauren's approach to evaluating and judging bourbon and American whiskey as an anchor judge for the American Distilling Institute's annual judging of craft spirits. Along the way, we chat about the wheat and rye hybrid grain you've never heard of and probably can't spell, the virtues of negative capability, what to drink with Dune author Frank Herbert, and much, much more. This episode will air on the final day of National Bourbon Heritage Month 2021, and one thing I want to point out about the two American whiskey features we've run this month is that both Eric Zandona and Lauren Patz are clearly energized by and invested in the emerging future of bourbon and American whiskey. As somebody who is, frankly, more than a little concerned with the ballooning price points and fetishized secondary market in the bourbon world, it's been really wonderful to get a look inside some of the emerging trends and operations that are currently doing most of the heavy lifting to move American whiskey forward. I guess what I'm saying is that in a time when most bourbon feels overhyped and allocated half to death, it's nice to know that there's still plenty of people out there who are completely in love with and dedicated to making whiskey the right way. For that reason and many more, I'm excited to share with you this delicious interview with my friend, Redwood Empire head distiller, Lauren Patz. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, So let's kick it off. Introduce yourself, if you would, to our listeners and tell us, generally speaking, who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Lauren Patz and uh, I hail out from California. I was born and raised in the Napa Valley, surrounded by beautiful vineyards and wine and grapes. And uh, my parents had a winery there, so I really kind of grew up within the alcohol industry, not so much spirits, but uh, that became a love later on in life. And um, and then from there, I studied classical medieval studies and Japanese in college. So <laughs> very useful <laughs> in terms of, uh, of what I'm doing this day and age. Um, but I really have always enjoyed history and I have a huge love for Japan and uh, Japanese. I ended up living there for a couple of years and uh, and then came back to the United States and found my true calling, uh, which was distilling and working within the spirits industry. And you are currently with 
one distiller up in the sort of Humboldt area where there's a lot of beautiful website, beautiful imagery on the brand, which we'll talk about, of course, Redwood Empire here in a second. But where do you get your start distilling? Yeah, so I started uh, with distillation at Spiritworks Distillery, which is in Sebastopol, California. And the distillery that I am currently with is Redwood Empire, which is in Grayton, California. The two distilleries are maybe 10 minutes apart from each other. <laughs> so uh, it's been, uh, it's actually been an easy transition for me. I haven't had to move. Um, oftentimes as a distiller, if you are kind of starting a new position or a new role, you uh, you have to move either across country. It's it's rare that you get to stay close to home, and so that's actually been really lovely. Um, I have known you know Redwood Empire and the team here since they started. Um, Spiritworks and uh, Redwood Empire kind of got their start around the same time, uh, back in 2012, 2013. And, uh, and so it's almost like the two distilleries kind of grew up together a little bit. And uh, it's, been, it's been fun to see a different set of operations, different set of philosophy and goals and things like that, and uh, have the opportunity to not only experience something different, but uh, to expand my own skill set and appreciation for spirits in general. Mm, mm. So I like that you have your own little microclimate there. It reminds me, I was just listening to a Tales of the Cocktail seminar this morning on peated whiskey and talking about how like all the Isla distillers are so close to one another. So you've got like a little little community there up in California. And um, what was it like growing up in Napa Valley? Because I know that a lot of people, whether they've visited Napa or not visited Napa, for many Americans, it looms large in our cultural alcohol identity as Americans, uh, especially after the judgment of 1970, whatever. So what was it like growing up there as, as opposed to perhaps visiting as, as a tourist, as, as I have several times? Well, it's always been beautiful. So <laughs> it was very, very beautiful, idyllic place to grow up. I mean, lovely valley, you know, vineyards, sunsets, temperatures, everything is so wonderful. Um, but I have to say, you know, growing up there, you really don't get to appreciate or enjoy what it has to offer because you're under <laughs> the drinking limit uh, in terms of age. So. Yeah, there were plenty of times where I'd be frustrated with uh, the tourist component because there's traffic and it's difficult to go to the store and things like that. But um, I've always been really thankful that that I grew up there because it is such a such a lovely place to kind of explore and hike and experience the outdoors a little bit, and then also have it be so tied to the earth and agriculture and uh, and things like that. I've always been more of a country girl than maybe an urban one. And, uh, and so, you know, getting dirty and all that kind of stuff has been really fun. You know, when my parents started their winery, um, we'd go out very early in the morning, we'd pick samples, test bricks right before harvest. And that's, you know, some of my most fondest, you know, childhood memories for sure. Yeah. And, um, for our listeners, you need to test the bricks to make sure that you're only putting the hardest bricks into the barrels. Right. Um, yeah, no bricks is a, is a measurement of, of how much sugar is, is in a liquid, I guess, B R I X. So yeah, little, little industry term. If I, I learned it when I was trying to create syrups 
And, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things when you, when you speak to somebody who's intimately acquainted with fermentation, uh, which I was not, I was trying to actively get my syrups not to ferment, uh, because people tell me <laughs> that's not what a syrup is supposed to do. Uh, but, but yes, it's, it's one of those terms that you find more and more in people who are like you are Lauren concerned with mashing, fermenting and distilling. So, um, getting back to Redwood Empire, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because we are rounding out National Bourbon Heritage Month. And I know that a lot of people think of bourbon as coming from Kentucky, right? It's, you know, Kentucky Derby, um, you know, all the famous uh, distilleries along the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. And although the vast majority of it does come out of Kentucky, there's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things, yourself included, with Redwood Empire. So, I guess tell me a little bit about what you distill and perhaps what your approach to distilling is. And maybe that will lead us into some of the projects that you're working on with Redwood Empire. And uh, we've got also a wonderful sample to taste here in just a few moments. Yeah, I mean, I love drinking whiskey outside of uh, kind of what you were talking about, those more traditional uh, states that offer it up, because I find sometimes we're less restricted by consumer expectations. So oftentimes when people are drinking whiskey, they expect that it's coming from Kentucky or um, Tennessee or, or things like that. And uh, they have pretty solid expectations in terms of flavor profile and mouthfeel and uh, expression and all of that. And so being at a distillery and making spirits outside of those, it, it frees you up a little bit. I mean, there's kind of that unknown, well, what is this whiskey going to taste like that's from California? And so it feels like a little bit more freedom to, uh, to explore and try some different things without uh, getting immediate lashback <laughs> or confusion. Oh, I like that. I like that. I was speaking recently to our mutual friend and colleague, Eric Sandona, about uh, his latest book, The uh, Atlas of Bourbon and American Whiskey. And one of the things that he called out was some of the maybe nascent or emerging regional whiskey styles. You know, we think of Texas whiskey with those really intense aging conditions. We think of, you know, Empire Rye in New York with its own set of conditions and rules about the state about where, you know, or where you need to source such a percentage of your grains from. Is there anything about California whiskey, whether it's probably not formalized right now, but as somebody who's been in the California whiskey space, does California whiskey have anything that you would say approaches an identity in the way that like Pacific Northwest single malts are starting to accrue that sort of reputation? I think that uh, that's part of Redwood Empire's goal is to help be a part of the definition of Californian whiskey. And, uh, you know, I've always kind of viewed it as being part of that Wild West, you know, pushing some boundaries, you know, being very bold and, uh, and out there. And uh, I think that that is really embraced not only in the branding uh, of our spirits, but also in the product itself. And, uh, and so Redwood Empire, I don't know if you're familiar where that term comes from, but the Redwood Empire refers to uh, a location in Northern California and specifically uh, Redwood trees. And uh, it kind of moves up the, up the coast along um, from you know Mendocino all the way up to uh, the Oregon border. And so that's, we're trying to take ownership of that space and kind of that feeling, that awe 
that, uh, that you often kind of feel overwhelmed by when you are walking through the redwoods. So, um, you know, just from a, like a emotional standpoint, that's what we're trying to evoke with our spirits. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. And one of those is the choices that you make as a distiller while you're distilling. And so some of the things that we do, uh, we've uh, sourced a lot of our grain from California, which is always a wonderful way to kind of uh, get that quote unquote terroir of an area. And then there's also our climate being so different from, uh, from other areas in the United States. So it's much more temperate, doesn't get, you know, very, there's not these huge uh, differences between uh, not only winter and summer, but just uh, during the day. And so the maturation process, which is um, how whiskey evolves over time within the barrel is going to be different. Um, and it will result in, in kind of different product coming out the other end that can't be replicated anywhere else. Yeah. I'd like to dig a little bit into that process. And uh, I do want to return to your personal style as a distiller, because especially for somebody who distills multiple different types of whiskeys or multiple different types of spirits altogether, uh, I think it's always interesting to see what parts of the process are most important to you and what things you try to optimize for. But let's talk, let's stay on Redwood Empire. Let's talk about that local grain. Let's talk about the process of getting it from the ingredient sourcing to the barrel. And then, you know, what I'm taking away from what you just said is that it seems like maybe what you're referencing is a slightly gentler aging process where there's not the massive highs and lows, peaks and valleys, changes in humidity that you might experience in Kentucky for example. It doesn't have the blistering dry heat that you have in Texas, you being sort of coastal and in, in a very heavily wooded area. So starting with the grain and then going through all those little touch points that make Redwood Empire whiskey is unique, like bring us a little bit more into the flavor and the process of that fingerprint, if that makes any sense. For sure. Yeah. So our grain is coming from Central Valley, which is um, maybe two, two and a half hours uh, away from the, the distillery that we're making the spirits from. And uh, we're using corn, wheat, and rye from that area. And actually, I worked with them, this company, Adams Grain, when I was at Spiritworks, and uh, and I now work with them here. I mean, lovely family-owned company and uh, really able to supply the highest quality of, uh, of grain. And uh, like you said, have that California stamp on it. And so it's nice not having to have things sitting in a warehouse, you know, for long periods of time and, and ordering them from just like one large, you know, manufacturing warehouse type facility. You, it really is, they harvest it, they clean it and they kind of send it our way. And that's always pleasant. <laughs> it's kind of a nice thing. And, uh, and then our malted uh, barleys, we get we definitely experiment with the malted uh, barley components of our mash bill recipes. Lately, we've been getting a lot of our malted barley from another local malt house called Admiral Malting, which is in Alameda, California. So not too far away from the distillery either, still in the Bay Area. 
And they've been around, you know, whew, I feel bad. I don't know exactly how many years, but I think maybe three, four years now. They, they're relatively new and just making some really lovely uh, malts. And uh, so it's nice to be able to work with them as well and really put that California stamp on, uh, on the product itself. So in terms of grain selection and, and mass, uh, mash bill recipe, Decision making um, that has a lot to do with what you want to achieve in the flavor of the final product. So for our rye mash bills, they tend to be very high rise, you know, between 90 and 95 percent rye. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they are very high rye and uh, and then also some wheat in there and then uh, a little bit of, uh, of malted barley as well. And then uh, the, the bourbon is more in the 70% range in terms of corn. And then there is a little bit of rye, a little bit of wheat in that as well, and, uh, and some malted barley. So it's a, a four grain bourbon. And, uh, and those, these are our kind of straightforward recipes. I mean, we do a variety of different mash bills, but these are the ones that kind of make up the bulk of, uh, of the spirits that we produce. And then, of course, we do some single malt and all kinds of fun things. Uh, but grain selection, I love. I've been to the actual grain facility out in Woodland, California, and uh, seen their cleaning process. They have an amazing piece of equipment uh, that I've seen work in wine before, but uh, I was fascinated to watch the grain go through where it is a video of the grain moving and it automatically recognizes the correct shape of the grain. And if there's anything that runs through that, you know, line of vision that isn't the correct shape, it shoots out a little concentrated shot of air and just goes and, uh, and that little piece just flies out. And uh, that's kind of how it's part of the cleaning process. It's very, very cool. I love it. That sounds extremely satisfying in <laughs> like sure. a, almost like a hypnotic way of, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was, I was similarly impressed. I got to ride a, a combine harvester for the first time last fall when, um, one of our friends was getting their, uh, corn harvested for, for moonshine. And, uh, I was similarly impressed. I was like, wow, like this thing just chews everything up and somehow we get mostly corn at the end. So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the marvels of, of modern manufacturing practices. I think it's great that you do so much grain sourcing locally, because one of the other things, in addition to keeping the carbon footprint down, in addition to ensuring freshness, you're also keeping the local money in the local economy in that way. And if you want to, you know, going back to our like sort of little conclave of businesses, whether they're distill all distilleries or, you know, businesses that all mutually support one another. I think that having that strong local economy where you're all working together and you have good rapport and mutual relationships that last many years and span multiple different jobs that you've had. I think that's to me, one of the benchmarks of a really healthy business ecosystem that, you know, kind of sets the groundwork for people being able to do creative things like you're doing at Redwood Empire. So I just wanted to call that out as something that I enjoy as well. Um, so it seems like Mashbill is one of the places where you flex a lot of creativity. Um, now, picking up from there, we're sort of into the fermentation process. So take us through um, anything that you do in the fermentation and distillation that you think uh, is either, you know, again, going back to that, what is that fingerprint of Redwood Empire as we walk through the distillation process here? 
I think uh, fermentation for distillation may or may not be one of those controversial <laughs> conversations uh, when you're talking to distillers. Uh, some distillers have very strong opinions about fermentation and how crucial it is for uh, the quality of your final product. And not only that, but very specific views about how it should be executed and done. While others are looking more for kind of maximum yields, it's looking at it as a cost-effective process necessary in order to create spirit, uh, to create the actual spirit through distillation. And I would say that my personal belief is somewhere in the middle. I mean, I believe that if you put, you know, bad in, you'll get bad out. But I also truly believe that fermentation for distillation is different than fermentation for um, something that's going to be consumed directly. And uh, the goal of it is uh, it is different. So I do believe that. But I think it's one of those hot topics. It's something that uh, distillers love to debate and love to get even into further debate with brewers about um, and even winemakers. So uh, fermentation is a wonderful science. It's, uh, and honestly, I, one of the things I love about distillation is that there are so many areas at which you can do a deep dive into. I mean, people dedicate lives, years, you know, everything to, uh, to fermentation science. And so that gets to be something that's a part of our process, but uh, we also get to explore a lot of other scientific areas as well, chemistry, you know, barrel uh, programs, things like that, which are equally as interesting to me. So fermentation can be one of those things, like, as you say, uh, very much a part of your identity as a distillery and as a distiller. Um, so we absolutely put a lot of time and effort into streamlining our process. I mean, it it is a business. You have to achieve a certain percentage of alcohol to make <laughs> to make the money uh, off of it that you've put into it. Because uh, I mean, if you imagine you get a nine to you know twelve percent wash after fermentation on your grain, you know you really get a very small amount volume wise out the end when you're looking at something that might be you know eighty percent alcohol, not uh, or so hundred and. 160 proof and things like that. So um, fermentation is crucial. We spend a lot of time in when we do, you know, temperature increases, we do add enzymes to facilitate sacrification, which is the process of breaking starch down into sugar so that when we add yeast, it's much more accessible for, uh, for the yeast to consume and produce ethanol from. Originally or traditionally, that process is taken on by the malt. So malt being um, a way to trick grain into thinking that it it needs to grow and you know create those enzymes naturally so we do add malt but we also do add uh, additional enzymes just to ensure that we achieve you know the highest conversion possible from starch to sugar and then hopefully from sugar into into ethanol our fermentation uh, duration is about seven days. And, uh, you know, I've done fermentations anywhere from, you know, three days to, you know, three weeks. And uh, it just depends on what the raw materials are. And again, kind of what the end goal is for the product uh, coming out the other end. Um, but in general terms, our typical fermentation duration is about seven days. Uh, we're getting anywhere from 10 to 12 percent alcohol is the goal. And uh, if you don't get that, then then something went wrong. 
<laughs> um, and uh, it needs to be evaluated and then fixed. And uh, after that, we have a continuous column still. So we're hooking up uh, that, uh, that fermentation and running it through the still, and it's continuously putting out uh, spirit at the proof it will pretty much go into barrel at. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to hit a couple of the points that you made about fermentation, because I agree with you. I mean, it's, it, we have wines and beers that we drink without distilling, right? Obviously fermentation is a valid science in and of itself. You spent your childhood working with it. You know, there is a lot to dive into. You know, you're talking about testing the grapes for the bricks, for example, when you were not even old enough to drink wine. Uh, I think of fermentation I think I, I think my way of thinking about it is probably pretty compatible with yours in that it's a bunch of yeast. And I remember having a conversation <laughs> with um, Brian Davis, who uh, ran a distiller or runs runs slash runs uh, a, a distillery in L.A. And his explanation about how yeast have almost domesticated humans to propagate themselves like its own species was pretty fascinating and so it's like when you think about it that way yeast doesn't really need us for all that much yes you can sit there and fuss over your distillation yes you can tweak this that or the other thing you can tweak temperature you can tweak open versus closed you can tweak wild versus uh manufactured you know to your exact specification yeasts but if the goal is to get some alcohol out of it you know another way to think of it is like they're they're like kids can you mess up your kids if you raise them wrong definitely we see lots of examples of that and yet kids are also pretty robust creatures. So like in, in another sense, there's like, all right, kids skinned the knee, like not, this is not going to be a, a big crisis. We don't need to sit there and micromanage every aspect of it. And then, you know, in terms of the use of malted barley versus enzymes, I kind of think of that debate or that conversation as being a similar conversation between standard and automatic transitions. I know, mm. or transmissions, I should say. I, I don't think in, to, in today's world, there's too, too many standard transmissions left on the regular market outside of like high-end sports cars. But I remember when I was growing up and learning to drive, it was like, you know, there were some, I had some friends who were into cars. I'm not into cars. I had some friends who were into cars who were like, oh, you can't drive stick, you're so lame. <laughs> and And it's like, yeah, but like, see what I'm doing? Like I'm driving, I'm like, and, and this is not safe, but like I'm driving, I'm steering with my my knee, eating French fries with this hand and like changing the music with this hand. You can't do that in your little stick shift car, can you? Right? So there are some advantages and disadvantages of doing them. Not to say that using malt is better or using enzymes is better. It's just going to create different results. So I do, I think it's interesting that you're taking sort of the middle road in these in in some of these um identity questions of like what makes this whiskey special because it allows you to kind of go off in so many different directions when you have the opportunity so uh anyway just for the, those are you know my two cents on on the on what we've talked about so far but i'm interested to hear about um your barrel treatment because you said that uh you know you're you're pretty fascinated by what happens in the barrel. And of course, that unique Cal uh, California barrel aging conditions. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Absolutely. I think that your barrel program is probably 
the most significant <laughs> decision that you're making as a distiller. Uh, I mean, it just supports a huge amount of the flavor and the texture and the feel of, uh, of the whiskey that you're going to be pulling back out of it in however many years or months or days, depending on whatever it is that you do. Um, so for us, we only use uh, full-size barrels. Um, so that's for whiskey, 53 gallons, although there is some variation between cooperages, cooperages being you know the facilities that make barrels. And, uh, and we generally go with a char four and a toast. So those are two different types of treatment on the actual wood. Uh, toast is kind of a slower, uh, lower temperature that penetrates deeper into the wood itself. Uh, and I think of that treatment as being a way to kind of ensure and facilitate extraction, flavor extraction from the wood. And then also there's the char, which is kind of very fast and hot. And that is the intention is to literally char slash ash uh, the, uh, the inside of the barrel. And I think of that as more as a filtration because uh, it's like carbon. So it's kind of helping to filter out some of what uh, what you might not want to last uh, in your whiskey and, uh, and kind of leave it behind in that barrel once it's removed. So I think that they provide very different functions. And I think I like having the both of them <laughs> be a part of, uh, of the barrel itself. And we have kind of over, over the years have uh, had several different cooperages, um, uh, Speyside, Independent Stave Company, Kelvin. And um, now we are uh, with the cooperage. It's actually pretty, they're a French cooperage, but the actual facility is just up the way here in Cloverdale, Chalois. So we have a variety of, uh, of different cooperages that we've used, which is also very fun as a distiller because it just shows you when it comes down to the tasting component and when you're doing blending and things like that, just how different uh, those barrels um, kind of allow the whiskey to express at the end. Uh, so it's really fun from an intellectual and obviously from a tasting perspective, um, but it also creates depth of flavor uh, in having that diversity to play around with when it comes time to blending. Um, so yeah, so majority it's it's char three. Um, typical scale is to char four, char four being the darkest or the, the hottest, the hardest char that you can achieve. So we're just kind of one below that. Okay. So mostly char three with some, with some toasting in there as well. Right. Um, so it's interesting, the distinction that you drew between toast and char in that I don't think I've ever heard it communicated just that way. Generally what I hear is the higher, the level of char, the more surface area you're creating in the barrel which basically equates to whiskey contact, like how much of the barrel can be in contact with how much of the whiskey at any given time with conventional logic dictating that the more of your charred surfaces in contact with your whiskey, the more quickly the whiskey will take on some of those characteristics. We can debate whether those characteristics are desirable or not in a given, uh, in a, in a given volume of barrel and a given aging conditions. But uh, it's, can, can you talk a little bit more about char as filtration. Um, I just think that's fascinating. I think I I, I want to eventually talk about some, some of the things that you judge a whiskey for. So this is kind of like my little preamble to that because I think that 
if I had to guess, it would have something to do with like mouthfeel and um, just the, the overall texture of the whiskey. If you're if you're actually using char as filtration, it seems like there's stuff that you want to get out. What are you trying to achieve and what do you mean by that more precisely? Well, I'm sure you've heard of charcoal filtration, right? Mm -hmm. Like running through spirits, running through charcoal. And I would consider this to be something very similar in what it's doing with the with the whiskey itself. So carbon filtration or charcoal filtration is a chemical bonding filtration. It's not like running something through a net and catching it. It's actually bonding chemically with different compounds and, uh, and thus taking them or removing them from solution. So that is kind of the what I'm describing when I talk about using it as uh, as chemical filtration. Of course, I, I do agree that you do get more surface area, the more intense the char is. Absolutely. But, you know, everyone has a different theory, a different reason, <laughs> different uh, kind of purpose behind the decisions that you're making, which is one of the reasons why I love, love, love talking to other distillers <laughs> because I'm just mm -hmm. so curious. But yeah, in terms of that, that filtration component during aging, I mean, more than just like picking up flavor and changing color and things like that, you're really hoping to achieve a chemical change in the spirit that is uh, that is present within the barrel. And I think that this is uh, one of the ways that that's achieved. Mm. Or one of the mm -hmm. ways that does. And I'm not going to go deep into the chemistry because I've probably just embarrassed myself by trying to pronounce <laughs> some of the some of the chemicals, but, um, but yeah, I oftentimes when you talk about carbon or charcoal filtration, you're looking to chemically bond out things mm -hmm. that might not have been cut out during distillation, uh, and things like that. That's so fascinating to me. Uh, also a total winemaker's answer, right? In that like winemakers <laughs> constantly use fining <laughs> agents as well to, you know, like to get undesirable things out of the wine, right? So there's, it's a similar thing. I don't know. I assume it has something to do with, with an electron, right? Because in general, like when things bond, there's uh, they, obviously there's different types of bonds, but sometimes I think of that filtration process as like, you know, you're talking about one thing binding to another. It's almost like those little pieces of loose charcoal, you know, have, have a charge that binds them to something, you know, maybe one of those bigger, clunkier things that maybe you ran a little bit unintentionally too far into the tails. For example, I'm not saying that this is a thing that always or sometimes happens in a barrel, but it does make sense to me. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you were able to kind of walk us through that a little bit more precisely. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. 
finish us out here. Talk to me about blending because uh, <laughs> to me, this seems to be like, you know, especially if you're taking the stance where it's like, all right, fermentation is not the end all be all. The barrel program is really where we need to be. And you've got all of this diverse cooperage that you just explained to choose from. How do you go about blending a product and how does that influence Redwood Empire's brand when it comes to putting out consistent products? Because I know that on the consumer end of things, if you're fighting against Kentucky bourbon to create an identity for California whiskey, um, well, one thing that Kentucky's got over a lot of folks is consistency, especially in those massive operations. So talk to me about blending, talk to me about consistency and, and, and I guess the brand, uh, and then we'll taste some bourbon. You know, uh, it's interesting that you bring up consistency uh, and blending in the same breath because I have found that blending makes consistency that much more of a realistic goal <laughs> and, a, and a dream. <laughs> you know, I've worked at distilleries that don't do any blending at all. It's uh, you pull it out of a barrel and it goes into a bottle. And uh, there's some really, I, there's some things I love about that approach. You know what I mean? It's like each. Uh, barrel gets to be expressed as a beautiful and unique snowflake. And even even with that, I think that you can achieve a certain level of consistency if you keep all the other decisions as similar as possible. So there's less experimenting with mash bill, there's less experimentation with process. Uh, and so if you kind of keep those things tighter, uh, as well as you know your barrel selection and things like that, you you can keep it within the same ra- same range consistency wise, uh, but uh, but still be able to taste the nuance from uh, from barrel to barrel. I have truly, truly enjoyed uh, taking on this um, role and uh, uh, work of blending because it just helps you build your palate in a very different way uh, when you are tasting through, you know, 50 to 60 barrels <laughs> and, uh, and making decisions uh, about which ones will kind of come together and either either create that consistency that we just mentioned or create something unique and and uh, and different a different flavor profile for sure. So Redwood Empire we do make a, a lot of whiskey ourselves but we also purchase whiskey. And so for the three main SKUs that we have which are Pipe Dream uh, which is a bourbon, uh, Emerald Giant which is a rye and then Lost Monarch which is a blend of of both bourbon and rye it is a combination of purchased and produced whiskey. And that's been also really educational for me. And uh, having the opportunity to taste whiskey, you know, made from uh, different states at a variety of different ages under a variety of different, you know, variables, uh, it's been like a pleasure, (laughs) like an absolute (laughs) pleasure. And just so fun. And, you know, when as I'm sure you've heard from from other distilleries and other distillers, you know, when you're starting to build your brand, uh, you have to make some pretty intense decisions about what you want in terms of cash flow and product and release and all of that kind of stuff. So um, being able to to bring on that whiskey has allowed us to grow on a rate that we are so happy with and so pleased with. And then of course, we're just laying down whiskey uh, you know like crazy right now <laughs> which is great and uh, and things like that and so um it's been 
it's been really fun to to explore that side of the industry. I mean, there's master blenders, there's, you know, people who, again, dedicate their whole lives just to that one science. And so having that opportunity has been really, really fun. The first project that I worked on, I've been with Redwood Empire, um, not even a year yet. I, I started with them in January of this year. And uh, the first project that I got to work on was our Bottled and Bond project. So Bottled and Bond is a type of spirit that is set to a very different standard than um, than what you I don't I don't want to say like normal whiskey but pretty much normal whiskey and so bottled and bond has to be made by the same distiller within the same distilling season it has to be a minimum of four years old uh, and it also has to be at 50 percent alcohol so 100 proof. And so uh, I came on in January and uh, Jeff, who is the master distiller here, he and I tasted through a couple hundred barrels and uh, put together the blends of whiskey that uh, he and the team distilled in 2016. And so that was a really wonderful way to become familiar with the distillery, to become familiar with the distillery's uh, style and, you know, house palette and all of that kind of stuff. So it was like pretty much the perfect entry. And also to just be able to have a little bit of myself in there as well. You know what I mean? To kind of have, a, you know, a little bit of, uh, of ownership uh, within, you know, the incredible work that, that they've been doing here for, you know, years. And, uh, and so we just, just bottled that and it's just going out now. And so it's, it's really special for any distillery to, to release a bottled and bond, but um, it's been such a great experience. And that would be this little beastie here, the Grizzly Beast. Grizzly Beast, yeah. So we did a bourbon uh, bottled and bond and then a rye bottled and bond as well. But mm -hmm. I thought, you know, it's, it's bourbon month, so why not? <laughs> Why not go bourbon? And and one one thing I am gonna do here is uh, we've got a bottle of the rye coming. It's this is totally FedEx's fault, not any of our fault. Uh, we've had some some slight uh, we'll call it some some light thunderstorming up and down the East Coast. So there have been some delivery delays, but right now we've got the Grizzly Beast bourbon. I'm gonna pour a little sample there, and um, Lauren, I'll let you just sort of guide me through this one spirit tasting. Oh my goodness. Yes. So this is a Grizzly Beast bourbon, and it was distilled in the spring of 2016 by Redwood Empire. So Jeff Duckhorn is our master distiller. And then, of course, we had a, a team at that time. Uh, Jeff Duckhorn, he's not a wine guy, is he? He, <laughs> I mean, he definitely has family in uh, in wine, <laughs> but uh, but he himself uh, was not never working in, in a wine outside of uh, out of the company that we work for now. So Redwood Empire is part of a also a wine company. So we do make wine here as well, uh, which has been really fun because we do a lot of wine barrel finishes and things like that. But uh, yeah. Back to uh, back to the Grizzly Beast bourbon. So again, uh, spring of 2016, uh, this is a 
kind of a variety of, uh, of different mash bills. So I mentioned before that, you know, the majority of what we're doing in terms of bourbon is at that 70% uh, corn. But this has some of our weeded bourbon in it, which is uh, closer to, you know, 51, 54% corn, uh, while the other percent uh, or partial percentage of that is made up by wheat. And so this, each one of the bottled and bond releases that we will do uh, will have a different percentage of grains. And so this one is definitely a little bit more uh, wheat forward because I personally love wheat. <laughs> I love it. I'd say wheat wheat and triticale and spelt are probably my top three grains uh, for working with. I love- What's that second one? Triticale. Yeah. Never heard of that. I mean, people pronounce it differently, but I call it triticale. Uh, I don't even know how they say it, but it is different sometimes. Uh, but triticale is a hybrid grain. It's a hybridization of uh, wheat and rye. I really love working with it. Some of the favorite, some of my favorite spirits I've ever made have been made with triticale for sure. But this is a lot, a nice percentage of wheat in there. You know, there's definitely some rye, which helps kind of cut through the sweetness that that is just naturally part of bourbons. Is you know, you have that kind of rich fatty, creamy sweetness. And so by having, you know, a good amount of rye in there as well, it kind of cuts through that. It gives it a counterpoint and uh, creates something really well balanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I think this is an example of a really well balanced bourbon, especially something that's coming in bonded at 50% or more. Uh, I think there's an expectation with bonded whiskeys that you need to, not get bowled over by the proof, but that the proof sort of needs to lead the way. And the interesting thing about my experience drinking this bourbon is that the the proof almost was what remained after the finish was kind of done. Like I still have that nice warmth in my chest. So it, it gives the full experience of a bonded bourbon, but what really led the way was just this insane amount of fruit. Um, not you know, like some rye whiskeys out there, but it didn't venture into sort of like the minty or caraway aspects of the rye. So it really did stay with sort of that really interesting confluence that you get with a uh, a really artfully done high rye bourbon where you do get some of those quasi fruity notes from the bourbon merging with the quasi slightly darker fruity notes from the rye and producing almost like this Venn diagram, like the middle of the Venn diagram is somehow this third fruit profile that you get when you artfully combine those together. So that's what I'm getting here. And, um, you know, the nose, the nose to me is just classic, classic bourbon. Like I might, it's not quite there. It's, it's a little bit fruitier, but it's almost like Elijah Craig to me in terms mm. of like, you know, you get, you get the really nice, like when I think of the smell of bourbon, I think of Elijah Craig. I don't know why. That was part of our market research. <laughs> really? Yeah, we pulled out a whole bunch of like bottled and bonds and things like that. And uh, that was definitely one of the ones we were tasting. That's funny. Yeah, it's really lovely, though. Um, and I love too that, you know, you were you were talking about like, well, what was the first thing you did when you signed on with Redwood Empire is you you got you literally took the stuff they had been doing up to that point and you put it in your body. Yeah. And so you internalized what they had been doing. And then you went and you sort of 
gave them a product that is a, an expression of what you can do. So I, I think that like, what a cool way to start with a company and uh, just, this is a, this is a tremendous, tremendous product, like really, really fun. I just, I mean, thank you for saying that. I also am very proud of it. I am so, so uh, happy with how things turned out. And this really was, you know, some of the first product that ever got made. You know what I mean? And so, you know, five years down the road, what we're doing right now, you know, I mean, I'd like to think, and I'm sure the team would like to think that we've done nothing but, you know, have that steady, uh, incline of knowledge and ability and uh, and quality as well. So it's it's exciting to taste this and be so happy with it and so pleased with it and just know that, you know, it's just going to get better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, special especially having all those wine barrels to play around with. That that is that is another nice <laughs> little affordance. Not to say that you can't make bourbon in other places, but bourbon in California happens to be right next to the wine. So you've got those nice wine barrels. Um, very excited to see what happens as you uh, continue to experiment with those. But uh, I was wondering if you could just take us through a little bit more of where you think the trajectory is going. Because when I initially was listening to you talk about how you were doing a little bit of sourcing in addition to a lot of laying down whiskey that you're making in-house, you know, what struck me is that that to me sounded like a distillery that was transitioning from its childhood stage into a more mature stage where, you know, you have the backstock and you have the resources and the trained up team to be able to in-house everything. Um, but then as I was thinking about that, like I realized that that was an assumption, like, you know, there's nothing to say that there's not a very viable distillery model out there that doesn't involve continually sourcing and continually making some amount. So I guess what is the plan for Redwood Empire moving forward, knowing that, you know, that's kind of where you started. Is that where you kind of want to continue to be at the nexus of sourcing and producing, or do you want to eventually in-house everything? You know, I think uh, that's a great question. And and you're right. I think that the industry would kind has kind of trained us to think that that should be the assumption. You know what I mean? The industry is like, well, obviously, this is the direction that you should go. Uh, and, you know, I have nothing wrong with uh, making everything in-house. I did it for the past seven years. Like, it's, I'm all for it. But uh, I think there's also something to be said uh, about, you know, different business models, different, you know, goals and, uh, and how to, you know, a thousand different ways to get to the same, you know, same destination. And so I think, what is really important for uh, Redwood Empire is to make really high quality products that are accessible, that are, you know, uh, that, that people uh, have the ability to go to their local store across the U.S. and, uh, and be able to, uh, to pick up a bottle and take it home and enjoy it. And that is what our true uh, goal is. So, you know, in terms of the three uh, SKUs that we've released outside of the, the bottled and bond, I think that those will probably stay at least some percentage of, uh, of sourced liquid. You know, what that looks like uh, will obviously be uh, impacted by, you know, our eventual success or, you know, more success? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
or uh, you know things like like that. I think we're. I mean, really, uh, they they started releasing whiskey only a few years ago. I think, and for, uh, I feel awful. I think 2018 or 2017 is when they did their first release. But this brand, the Redwood Empire brand, with uh, with the the trees and things like that, and the three different skews, really uh, was released at towards the end of 2019. And so it's still very, you know, very kind of getting its feet and uh, and making its way forward and things like that. I mean, obviously they've been making whiskey for years before that, but the actual coming together is just starting to happen right now. So again, it's an exciting time for me because I get to help with making some of those decisions and, uh, and kind of uh, identifying what our goals are. You know, I, I would have said that probably at the beginning, I would have thought uh, that, yeah, I want 100% of all of our products to be made in-house because what distiller doesn't want to have like 100% ownership of everything that's coming out of their distillery? But having had this experience with having that opportunity for tasting through what the different offerings are and really seeing how it enhances the overall quality of what we're able to put out there, uh, I would have to say that uh, that that conditioning that I felt has changed. And it's not, you know, it's again, not necessarily a better or wrong or whatever. It's just kind of like a different way. And that might be a really obnoxious, politically correct thing to say, but it is truly how I feel. So, um, you know, there's good product is good product. As long as you're doing it safely and transparently, I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, you know, Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. So that's what you're doing. There's <laughs> there's a fork in the road. You can make it all yourself. You can be one of those operations at sources and you're saying, hey, no, we'll take the fork. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep doing a little bit of of each as, as long as it makes sense and, and continues to help the brand grow and, and achieve the, the really cool flavors. Now, I, I will say, this opened up and it doesn't smell like Elijah Craig anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's got a man. It's it's got a lot of uh, beautiful confectionery and almond notes. Um, I had a podcast recently with um, my friend Erin Petrie, and she talked about much maligned marzipan as a uh, mm. as a flavor note. You really can't get away with saying that anymore. But to me, I don't know. I kind of get that really nice sweet almond candy on this. I mean, um, I'm I'm a baker, so I'm I'm a sucker for like frangipan, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I and I I love deeply love marzipan. So hearing that, I'm just like, mm-hmm, yeah, tell mm-hmm. me more about that <laughs> about that it. flavor profile for sure. But it's it got to be the wheat, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, I mean, the wheat. I think for me, wheat often uh, comes across as like stone fruit, uh, very floral and uh, mm-hmm. and very kind of. Uh, like sweet tart fruit and uh, and things like that. I think that the marzipan flavor is kind of the richer underlying note. So that's that marriage of those different grains uh, kind of coming together. So the weight on the palate, that nice kind of uh, creaminess and thickness that, you know, is uh, what I love. For me, spirits is uh, a, you know, a total sensory experience. So obviously, you know, nose and uh, and mouth, and you you know, everyone uses their eyes uh, when they're looking at uh, at whiskey color and things like that. But for me, texture is such a huge component of the enjoyment of all spirits, but for whiskey in particular. And uh, and texture can tell me a lot about uh, process and again that decision tree and uh, and things like that as well. 
Well, Lauren, you just segued me perfectly. I was going to try and find a way to turn our attention to how one might go about judging whiskey, which is something that you do. And you just you just opened the door for me here. So uh, this past year, a couple months ago at the ADI Annual Judging of Craft Spirits, you headed up one of the whiskey tables. And to me, as one of the humble cane slash uh, gin folk uh, who often gets to taste unaged spirits, or if they're aged, sometimes there's you know fun stuff done to them in addition, botanically. Uh, but I've always been intimidated by the whiskey table. It seems <laughs> like compared to what I would get at a gin table or a rum table where there are just so many different and very diverse styles and expressions, when you're spending your entire day judging bourbon, I feel like it can get a little bit intense in a different way. So I'm wondering how you think about sitting at a table all day and judging bourbon in general. Like, how do you survive that? And then beyond, you know, it seems like texture is important to you, but like, what do you look at when you're evaluating bourbon to then subsequently give it a score? And then, you know, along with the rest of the panel of judges, award it uh, an eventual medal. Yeah. This was uh, such a wonderful, wonderful time I had uh, at the uh, at the head of one of the two bourbon tables, and uh, this would be my fifth year uh, as a judge at ADI, and I too have spent time on a gin table. I loved the gin table. <laughs> I love gin so so much, but. Coming to terms with bourbon is kind of how I felt uh, about this <laughs> experience that we had over the course of these three days. And I don't even know how many bourbons. Uh, it was a, you know, sometimes you have to break through a certain threshold to uh, gain a, a totally new understanding and appreciation for something. And that is what I feel I accomplished uh, during, uh, during that time. It is very different than uh, than judging gin. I mean, because there is a different set of rules. Uh, there's a tighter range for diversity. I mean, people can make some pretty uh, distinctive choices that are present uh, in their product, but it's not like one person decides to use Angelica and another person decides to use lime. It's like one person decided to do this type of fermentation and another person decided to use this type of barrel. I think that there is a lot of nuance involved and uh, I would say it does require a lot of focus and, uh, and attention and honestly, a real passion for the spirit itself. Um, absolutely. You have to enjoy bourbon, <laughs> I would say, to uh, to judge it correctly and fairly. So, Especially when um, you're getting waterboarded with it for three days. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I don't want to say it was not torture by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I can't complain because really I got to sit down and taste through some really incredible offerings. Um, but, but, you know, tasting through a hundred spirits or more a day and, uh, and having them all be, you know, fairly high proof, you know, a lot of barrel tannins in there and, uh, it can, uh, it can be kind of intense, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but yeah, overall a wonderful experience that did totally transform my relationship with bourbon. And, uh, to speak to your question about, um, how to go about that judging, you know, 
What I love about ADI is the fact that at a table, there's a distiller, there is a bartender, there is, you know, someone within media who's sitting there. And from the first year I was judging there through, you know, until this one, of course, I have found it so valuable in my personal career and in, in my um, personal relationship with spirits to get that different perspective because I am, I feel like not only is it my job, but also that's my area of expertise to talk uh, specifically on the craft of the spirit as a product and as uh, whether or not there are faults uh, within it. And if those faults exist, where are they coming from and, uh, and where can they be remedied? But hearing the different sort of um, angle and direction that, uh, that those others take, I find incredibly enlightening. I, <laughs> sorry, I'm not to go off on a tangent, but one of the best piece of advice I ever got uh, was from Kelly Rivers, who is a mutual friend. <laughs> and Equal parts uh, or die. Yes, yes. I mean, I do love a good Negroni. <laughs> but she basically was telling me that I can't just make spirits that I like to drink. She's like, well, what are people going to do with it? You know what I mean? Like, what, how do you, I, she's like, anytime a, a distiller walks into, you know, a bar that I'm running or, you know, whatever, I always ask them, well, how should I drink this? And I am, <laughs> I'm sitting there being like, no, well, that's a great question because for me, I'm just like, well, I just drink it at room temperature and straight. So <laughs> I doubt that's how other people would enjoy it. So having that kind of, um, again, perspective. It kind of, as a distiller, you're in a distillery, you're tasting spirits straight, you're really focused on what you're doing, but realizing that uh, that people enjoy it in a very different way, their relationship with spirits is very different than yours. Uh, it, it's, I can't, I can't say it enough, invaluable. So I would sit there and I feel like part of my role uh, at a table when I'm judging is to speak on the actual craft of the spirit itself. So when I'm tasting uh, bourbon, the first thing that I do is to see if there's any noticeable faults in it. You know what I mean? If the actual distillation has, uh, has done its job and cleaned the spirit of any potential imperfections that might have happened or occurred during fermentation, but also that the correct cuts have been made on that spirit itself. So every distillation has three parts, heads, hearts, and tails. Again, distillers will debate uh, where those cuts should be made and at what time and at what proof and all of that. Um, but uh, I'd say one of the most essential parts is to not include any of the, the heads, which are the more volatile alcohols. They tend to come over at lower temperatures, the first uh, things to remove, and uh, the most potentially dangerous in terms of um, consuming them and having an automatic liver shutdown. So for me, I feel like it's my role to nose and taste for those things and, uh, and see if they're present. Outside of that, I try to take what the standard of that spirit is. So my understanding of what a bourbon should be and what its kind of identifying characteristics are and things like that. Oftentimes we will get a little bit of information along with the spirits. It is a completely blind tasting, 
but we do get a little bit of information. Sometimes we get a some of the mash bill uh, information, we get proof information. And uh, if there's anything kind of special that gets called out by either the distiller or the, the branding uh, when it's submitted. And, uh, and so there's a little bit of information there that we get. So I incorporate all of that within what the standard expectation should be. And then I try to judge it based off of that. I think it is very dangerous to judge things based off of what your opinion and preferences are. I mean, I am sure that that there's a little bit that comes into play. You can't completely divorce yourself from what your preferences are. But I think uh, every judge should have a really true understanding of the, the oh my God, this is going to be a pun of the spirit of that spirit and try to preserve that as much as possible. Sure, sure. And uh, I mean, I can't agree with you more about the value of diversity in that because I was at the rum table this year and uh, I dabbled a little bit in in, in the cane uh, table uh, a couple times off and on in previous years, but mostly gin. And one of the things that I really loved about being there was just a little bit of serendipity in that Nancy Fraley, who's normally the lead judge, who's sort of circulating around the room, helping people if they have questions, sort of ruling on certain questions of art, you know, little nuanced questions where, you know, you need a ruling here or there, she would kind of help out. But because of COVID, this was her first opportunity to really like get her chops back up. And so she's like, nah, I'm in the trenches. Like I'm, I'm judging on the rum table. And I feel like I got a crash course on Cooperage from her. Mm. And Cooperage, I'm one of those media people, you know, we just sit here and talk all day. So I don't, I know the basics about wood. I know if I think it was well handled in a spirit or not, but just to sit there and absorb some of the things that she was able to pull out of like, you know, like, all right, listen, like here is something that was clearly kiln dried. Look at this color. Look at, you know, what happens to the texture when you're dealing with kiln dried cooperage as opposed to really nice cooperage. And so it was really, really informative for me to have a completely different set of skills than she had and the other folks at the table, you know, Suzanne, who's just this rum agricole, amazing wealth of information. So to me, that's the real value, just to echo what you were saying, is like really having all these different looks at it uh, that can prevent you from taking that really narrow siloed approach where it's like, nah, it's my way or the highway. Well, it's not different people out there have different palettes. It's inherently not your way or the highway. So let's get the most useful thing for the most people out there. So um, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm really glad that uh, you survived the gauntlet of bourbon over the course of like two, two and a half days, because uh, I don't know that I would have survived. I think mm -hmm. that's, uh, I think that shows a real dedication to, to the spirit. I think I probably wouldn't be able to look at another bottle of bourbon for a couple months if I had to do that. So kudos to you. Thank you. It does help that uh, I'm used to drinking spirits, you know, all day, every day and tasting and things like that in terms of preventing palate fatigue. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, and I'm used to drinking high proof spirits. So, you know, I think that that was, you know, a potential area of struggle for um, for some people because, you know, we're sitting there doing uh, flights of cask strength bourbon. You know what I mean? Over and over again of cask yeah. strength bourbon. The, for me, 
if it's not 90 proof, it's not worth drinking. So mm-hmm. <laughs> unless it's a liqueur, but, uh, but or it just doesn't taste like it's alcoholic to me anymore. Cause I'm used to tasting like 190 proof coming off a still <laughs> type mm-hmm. of situation. Uh, and so, uh, it, it is hard to, to be just sitting there and tasting round after round of like, you know, 110 to 120 proof spirits and uh and to be as dialed in as uh as we should be to give people the feedback and and the judge that they deserve right right two things i want to key in on before we kind of wrap up the main portion of the interview about what you were just saying is that i think what you're describing about your superpower as a, a distiller in this kind of lines up with something that occurred to me when you were first starting to talk about like the palate, potential palate fatigue and just the the process of going through bourbon after bourbon after bourbon. And the one benefit I think to having all these bourbons lined up next to one another is that because they're all in that narrow band, you can zoom in more on the differences, which is great, right? Like it's not like you're tasting a bourbon, a gin, a rum, and a liqueur, you've got all bourbon. So the, I, I would say the resolution gets sort of crisper when you have less noise to deal with but then even so within that like there's still those hurdles of palate fatigue and you get it even you know in any spirits category you'll get it let alone something that's always barrel aged and especially you know not everything we get is good so you're gonna get some real abusive ones towards the end of certain flights um so i really do think that you know, that's a great superpower that you can bring to bear is your tolerance for that proof. You know, it's, it's, I, you know, something that I think, you know, in addition to the resolution that you get from just focusing on bourbon, you also bring that special type of resolution that says like, nah, I'm like kind of immune to this. So like, <laughs> you know, jump on guys, like I'll, I'll, I'll kind of carry you through this. If you guys can just comment on some of the, uh, some of the other aspects, I'll at least wade through the proof for you. So it really is a team effort. It's kind of a, a platoon or a squad approach to, uh, to giving a final score. And, uh, it was great to hear your feedback on what that process is like from, from, uh, the lead judge of a table. So I've had a tremendous time, not only tasting this beautiful whiskey with you, but also learning your specific approach to whiskey and everything that you're bringing to Redwood Empire. Um, Is there anything that you think we missed before we kind of jump into the lightning round? Oh my goodness. You know, I think we did a pretty good job (laughs) covering uh, a variety of different things. You know, I... I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to to talk about something that I truly love and and passionate about. And, uh, you know, I education and and things like that have always been, you know, a huge focus for me. And so I'm just, I'm just so happy to to be able to talk about it. I mean, I think, I think we covered all the good stuff. (laughs) There's plenty more, there's always more, but uh, I think we got it covered. Well, for those of you listening, stick around after the lightning round. We'll tell you how to get your hands on a bottle of Redwood Empire bourbon or rye or grizzly beast or what have you. But for now, let's jump into the lightning round. First question, what's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that you've been more recently getting into? This is a tricky one for me because I'm not really a cocktail person. I am less about the balance of sugar and acid and much more about the alcohol. <laughs> so whenever people ask me this question, I always say a boiler maker, but then I get a lot of like rolled eyes and that's not a cocktail. So I will say, I will say I do have a severe weakness for 
anything tiki. I just there's something magical about those concoctions that uh, that get me every time. I like the phrasing a severe weakness. Uh, <laughs> that's that that's very indicative for me of of exactly the flavor of of that uh, of that passion for those drinks because I I get it right like there's something mystical about tiki especially because the the glassware is so very rarely clear right you're given an opaque thing with a straw and you're like here enjoy and you're like oh what what there's the, like there's this anticipation inherent in that and there's just the complexity so I can see why you as a distiller especially as a distiller who has access to some of the country's best tiki bars not that far from you might give that as an answer so I love it um, next question what's a seemingly small or idiosyncratic occurrence that always makes your day well, I was trying to think about something distilling related. So the the thing that makes me so happy to this day, it doesn't matter how many times I've done it, but uh, every time it makes me happy when it works out is proofing. Every time I'm adding water to spirit, I have this like strange anxiety <laughs> that it's going to like be overproofed or uh, like significantly underproofed. And so every time I do the the final reading uh, for the alcohol concentration and it comes out perfect, I find that to be exhilarating and so satisfying. Um, and I think it's because I enjoy all of the little micro math that is involved with that process. And then on a personal note, I do have this thing where I love to eat uh, <laughs> like uh, chips or candy, things that come in individual packages in either uh, sets of one, three, or multiples of five. And I find that very satisfying. <laughs> All right. So like, the, so, so an example, like yeah. uh, if you've got like M&Ms, like it's always you put three in the hand and take down the three or the five. Yes. Or the one, but never yes. two or four. Never two or four. Mm. That's really awesome. That's a <laughs> that's a really good one. I I mean I would have been satisfied with the uh with the getting the the proof correct, like right on the right on the nose, but that that's a really nice one. It's almost like you're not allowing yourself the opportunity for symmetry in those experiences. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. gotta be an odd number. You've gotta like it's gotta be off balance somehow which, you know, kind of encourages that next bite. Cause then like, let's say you take a three M&Ms and you've got two on the left, one on the right. Well, you take another three, you get two on the right, one on the left. You get that opportunity to keep on correcting. That was way more psychoanalysis than that question warranted. <laughs> um, big question here, cocktail with anyone past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? It doesn't have to be a cocktail. It could be a glass of wine or a, a fine, fine pour of Redwood Empire whiskey, but just paint us a picture. Well, I am a very big nerd and I actually was asked this question just recently and I said uh, Ridley Scott because I was going through an alien phase. <laughs> but I think with the new Dune coming out, it would have to be Frank Herbert because I just am so ecstatic. Dune was the first book I ever read. Um, I had a really hard time with reading. And, um, and I think the reason why I was able to read Dune was because I had watched the movie so many times. <laughs> and, oh, that's, uh, that's a really cool story. Yeah, they have the older movie. And now they're there. When when is the reboot um, set to set to air? I think October. So it's coming up. 
That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. What would what would you um what would you drink with uh, Frank Herbert? Well, I I always feel like uh, absinthe is like a really great truth serum, um, mo mostly because it's so high proof <laughs> for most of the time, and you can drink it over the duration of the night because you just keep adding a little bit more water to it mm -hmm. and uh, and things like that. And I think it kind of puts you in this very uh, open state you know what i mean you kind of just like when you're drinking absinthe you feel a little bit different and uh and so uh probably absinthe <laughs> that's awesome that is awesome i love that as uh yeah it, it, it's it's one of those spirits where the process of drinking it almost encourages you to lose track of how much you've had yes. um which is also an interesting affordance so really cool answer uh last but not least here and I bet you've got a good answer for this based on everything we've covered so far, but do you have any controversial views or beliefs in the spirits or cocktail world? I mean, <laughs> I think we touched on a few of the potential areas for, uh, for controversy. Uh, yeah, I, and you're right. There are times where I, where I tell myself, oh, this is a controversial view, but I... <laughs> have such a difficult time picking one out right now. I feel like it doesn't matter what you say. If you believe in something, it's controversial when it comes to distillation. I mean, if if you're like, this is the way to do this thing, then someone else is going to be like, absolutely not. That's the opposite of the way to do that thing. <laughs> so I feel like a bit of a letdown on this question, unfortunately, but uh, I think that's the truth of it. Well, I think it's interesting, and this is this is a, a really cool point, I think, to wrap up on, even though it's not the typical type of response that we get to this question, because I think what it demonstrates is something that the poet Keats would have called negative capability. It's this it's this famous ability to hold two ideas in the mind at once without necessarily being in distress. So uh, the way that we talked about enzymes versus malt and sourcing versus in-housing entirely, I think it takes a very special kind of person with a very special relationship to the craft of distillation and blending to be able to hold those perhaps occasionally conflicting ideas in the mind at once and be okay with it, right? Because there's so much pressure from the industry. There's so many trends that get fetishized, especially in bourbon. We don't need to get into that right now. And um, just pressure overall to go in one direction or another to make one group of people or another happy that I think simply being able to hold multiple different ways of doing things in the mind without necessarily getting too stressed out about it is radical in its own right. I, I love that. I, it's funny because um, I feel like that is describing <laughs> my mother and my mother would say that I am the opposite of that where I always have an answer <laughs> and I always feel like I'm right, which is true. But I feel when it comes to spirits, you know, I, again, feel very passionately about them. I feel very passionately about the production of them and the integrity of them and all of that. But I don't take them so seriously. You know what I mean? I, you know, I'm very open to hearing other people's perspective and ideas. 
I will say that I probably am less open to listening if there's no why. I, I really uh, don't like when there isn't a reason or an intention or a goal or something like that. It just doesn't feel like it has the same sort of weight or uh, and it just doesn't feel right to me. But mm -hmm. the weight of conviction behind it, right? Yeah. If there's no why, there can't be any conviction behind it. Well, you can't argue with somebody who doesn't have a why, and uh. <laughs> I might like to argue. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, Lauren, this has been a hell of a good time for me. Uh, great to catch up with you. Great to see your face uh, through the digital screen here. Uh, can you, just for the sake of our listeners who are probably wondering how they can get their hands on a bottle of this Grizzly Beast or one of the sort of core lineup of the spirits that... Redwood Empire offers. How do they get their hands on one, especially if there's a shipping straight to your door option, since we're still kind of working on this whole pandemic dealy? For sure. I think that the easiest way to kind of find out uh, if there are spirits near you uh, or if they're available to be shipped to you is probably to visit the Redwood Empire uh, whiskey website. Uh, on there, you'll find a kind of like find your whiskey type uh, page and uh, it's pretty it's pretty up to date and accurate. And then um, I think we are with Drizzly as well which you can uh, order online and a few other outlets there is, is probably the easiest uh, way to kind of find out. Uh, we are nationwide, so uh, it should be available uh, or accessible to pretty much everyone. So, And yeah. if uh, Drizzly wants to break into, you know, the independent bottling, uh, I feel like there's a really good opportunity here for Drizzly Beast. Um, <laughs> You know, <laughs> just putting it out there. Yes. Uh, but uh, Lauren, thank you for sharing your expertise and for sharing, of course, the delicious liquid you made. And thanks, most importantly, for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.
This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Delicious Grizzly Beast bourbon and distilling insights courtesy of Redwood Empire head distiller Lauren Patz. And a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.